Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 39. In this episode, Professor Olson and his class discuss chapters 24 through the epilogue of Garth Nix's Sabriel. I would like to start today by asking... Well, there are a bunch of... A bunch of loose ends I would kind of like to tie up. Final appearance of Moggett. We've still talked very little about Touchstone. Let's start there. Can't, like, totally ignore Touchstone. (laughs) Um, What do you think about Touchstone and his name, for instance? What does his name mean? Many of you should recognize him, though I know. See, see, Aaron discreetly giving other people the opportunity to answer. <laughs> I, actually, I totally missed it until you pointed it out. It was a fool's name. I totally missed that. Dorian? Oh, I was like, no, it's just a name. A fool's name, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wh- wh- which, which fool in particular is lurking behind this? There's a reason. As that you it, like it? Yeah, the fool in As You Like It. Uh, uh, the Shakespearean fool. Um, this is one of two Shakespearean names in this play, the other being a horse, actually, uh, which is, um, interestingly, a very obscure name from a very obscure Shakespeare play, but it happens to be my favorite of Shakespeare's plays, um, which is Measure for Measure. A horse is the name of the execution of the headsman uh, in Measure for Measure. He's the guy who comes into the prison uh, to execute Barnardine and then is sent out again because the prisoner refuses to be executed. Um, that's, that's how they operate in that way. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Touchstone, Touchstone is the fool, and he knows this. Um, that is somehow uh, 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 Moggett and Touchstone both seem to have read Shakespeare in some... <laughs> Some, some rather unlikely way. Uh, and he recognizes, he objects because it's a fool's name, he says. But then he accepts it. Um, but does anyone know what else a touchstone is? That is when it is not a proper name of a Shakespearean character. Come. It's something by which you, you measure other things, almost. Yeah, it's, it's, traditionally it is, it's, it's the stone by which you measure the purity of metals, especially gold and silver. Um, and that connection, it was also it was used in alchemical experiments as well. Um, and uh, that's why Shakespeare's character is named that. That is, that's one of the things that Shakespeare is playing with in that play um, by naming the full touchstone. Um, Shakespeare not quite as obsessed with alchemy and things as John Donne was, but but you know everybody in the Renaissance liked it, uh, alchemy. Um, so, uh, but are there ways in which Touchstone earns his name? He accepts his name, and interestingly, we never learn his real name. Even after he finally fesses up and tells his story, we never hear what his name is. Um, we know what his destiny. Is that is even before the Clare openly address him as the king, perhaps we maybe tumbled a little bit more quickly than Sabriel to the fact that this appears to be the only member of the royal family left. Um, and so, uh, it, it, assuming they all survive and the world doesn't come to an end and everything, uh, his, his, his destiny seems 
comparatively queer. Um, when in the other two books we meet Touchstone after he in fact becomes king, he still goes by King Touchstone, actually. So not only have we not learned his name by the end of this book, we never learn his name, in fact, his original name. Um, which again I find interesting. Dan. Yes, you do. Oh, at I forgot. The very end of the third one. He knows it. But won't say. I don't remember. <laughs> But it's. But I just. I. I found it really. When I found the book too, I totally expected like when he became king, he was going to become king. Like this would be the moment when he like turns back and like you know gets over things and like embraces his. But I. I actually laughed out loud and was like, King Touchstone. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> well, now that Taylor has demonstrated superior knowledge of the subject matter, do you wish she ever stood? Well, I like, <laughs> <laughs> said at the beginning, this is only the second time I'm reading these books. That's what I find them. I, I find them really fascinating. Um, it's one. This is this is the, this is one of the fun things about uh, you know, <coughs> as a medievalist especially, you have to indulge by my entertainment value in you know in reading new books uh, and and talking and the desire to talk in class about new books that have that you know that are quite recent and which I've only just discovered. Normally, of course, they're books that have been around for a very long time uh, and have had lots and lots of chances to read them. Um, so no, this is fun, and this is, this is one of the things that I was looking forward to most uh, in talking about this book together is you know the stuff that I am learning and the stuff that I'm seeing for the first time because as I said these books are very new to me too. So, um, do you remember the name, Herbert? Yes, uh, I do. Should I say it? Uh, oh. well, okay, okay. There's a people that want More of a beer's name that well. And uh, it's, I found that interesting given the whole bazooka thing he's got going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and spoilers. <laughs> so, I totally, I, like the spoilers thing, like, I, I don't, I'm missing that gene, I think. I just, I don't, spoilers never bother me. But um, my, th- my philosophy of literature, by the way, is that if finding out a piece of information in advance destroys the experience of reading the book, by definition, it was not a very good book. Um, that is a cheap parlor trick upon which great writers do not rely. <laughs> that sounded very ponderous, didn't it? That was, that was quite a pronouncement. Uh, His name's Fluggen. Huh? His name's Fluggen. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about it? What, how does it function? 
If there is a name in this book which screams, I have symbolic significance. It is this one, right? Dorian? Well, Charlie was his parents were always done, and he objected and realized that he, what he's done, he's already punished for, so his name is her festival, but I am the fool, I was the biggest fool, I so am. Yeah, it certainly, he connects it with, he connects it backwards, right? It's an apt description of him that is just being called a, a fool is an apt uh, description of him because he, he believes, played the part of a fool uh, in helping to bring about, unwittingly, the queen's death. Um, but it has a significance forward, too. Especially thinking about it in its non-gesturely significance. That is, its alchemical significance. Looking forward. A touchstone, as I said, is the, is the thing that you touch gold or silver to in order to ascertain its purity, in order to ascertain its quality. Let me ask this question another way. What does touchstone do in this book? What is the point of touchstone? Apart from being a future king and the last remnant of the royal bloodline, which has almost died out. Uh, well, at first he's kind of a guide to Samuel, uh, although not very effective at first. Yeah, he, he wants to be her servant, right? And, he, and she gets really annoyed at how subservient he is at the beginning and, uh, and you know, all of his milady business and stuff like that, right? So he, he thinks that he's... He, he, he can't be her friend, he can't be her helper, he can just, he'll just be her servant. And he does help her in being a guide. Though she has Mogget, and Mogget's a big help when he's a cat. <laughs> Jordan? Um, and so, well, she, she has the test of the Abbots, she's dealing with the dead, and dealing with, you know, three metrics, so it's like Mogget. But she, has, she doesn't, from until she comes to she never deals with another human being. And she, she the Abbots has to protect the living from the dead, not to stop the dead. So in some ways, it's like a testing of her skill as Abbots and her ability to function. The uh, Nesso, he's a big part of her ability to deal with the uh, villagers properly, and he educates her a lot in Belisaia. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he certainly becomes more useful to her as time goes on. Um, Other thoughts? Okay. He was also, at least the way I saw it, a measure of how far the world has changed or fallen from its previous state. Because we don't get an idea of what it was like, except for Touchstone, before the Great Charter Stones were broken. Yeah, and that I think is a really important thing. It's one of the things that I primarily think of. Malgut, of course, remembers the older stuff. You know, he remembers all the stuff, but but he's talk about it, and it's not very helpful. Um, he'll make cryptic comments and sarcastic remarks about how things have changed. But uh, it is touchstone. Remember, Sabriel has very little uh, measure of comparison when she's going around the country knowing, knowing what has changed, knowing what the... I mean, of course, she, she could walk into a village where two-thirds of the people have been killed by the dead and figure out all by herself that this is not as it should be. But, uh, but nevertheless, to be able to, to have... Like when she gets to Belisette, for instance, um, and to know... Touchstone is a reminder 
you know, through Touchstone we get this memory, this living memory, of how things were right before the tragedy befell, right before the old kingdom was disrupted. Um, and I think it, uh, he, he does, I think he does serve that way uh, um, really significantly. Again, that's not just backward looking though, that's also, that's also future looking. Um, it gives her something, you know, she comments on this in the, in the last chapters, when they're in Anselstier and they're riding around in, in army trucks and stuff, she says, like, I, I wish I could have seen the royal guard. I wish I could have seen things. And she hesitates before saying, back in your time, because she doesn't want to make him feel bad, like, you know, you're like 200 years old. Um, though he completes uh, that sentence, like, she, she does wish she could have seen how things were in his time. And we get these hints about how things are going to be uh, later on when Touchstone becomes king and the royal line is reestablished. And there will be a new future, which will be not exactly the same as 200 years previously, but will be, but will be like it. And he is, so he's not only sort of the link backwards, he's also the bridge forwards. Yeah. Well, something that I thought interesting was interesting was that um, Touchstone is the bastard son of the queen. So he's kind of not really completely like it's it's this kind of it's not he's not like the true heir he's and and it's not like he's really coming into it or it's going to come into it in the normal way he's still king he's still got the bloodline but it's it's kind of diluted in a, in a way yeah yeah I mean he's he's very open about the fact that he's only a bastard child of the queen um, so yes the new bloodline is not going to be quite the same as the old bloodline yeah. So Touchdown says that his father died in a hunting accident. What do we do? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's quite enough century for it to be the same person who died in a hunting accident from before, but that's a... Yeah, it's a century off. Yeah, it is. It is. Because, yeah, Falk had been down there for more. But it's a... I was going to say it's a a lovely idea, but it's not a lovely idea. (laughs) It's a horrible idea, but... yeah, no, I, I guess um, since they're probably separate, I guess it only serves to reinforce the importance of uh, hunting safety. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be careful whilst spear hunting because, man, you know. Um, but it is an interesting kind of thing. <laughs> um, when he is still lignified. She brings his spirit back from death, but finds that he is still a statue. What does Margaret tell her has to happen? A breath or a kiss. A breath or a kiss. Yeah, he needs to be breathed on. Um, though Margaret suggests a kiss would be appropriate. Um, and this is a, a sort of a slightly comedic reversal of the fairy tale trope, which is explicitly alluded to later on by Touchstone himself. Do you remember that when she is talking about the sort of fairy tale fantasies that she used to have when she was a girl growing up at Quiverly College, and she imagined, you know, the, the, the old ma- the old kingdom with, you know, its its, its magic and monsters and princes to be and. Uh, he interrupts her and, and says, rescued? Right? And she said, married. Right? Uh, that is, you know, we have the reversal of the, 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 the woman rescuing the prince uh, who is locked into, well, not sleep exactly, but anyway, would. Um, 
into this kind of magical stasis. So we see a reversal there, but she won't kiss him. This is one of three very important kissing moments in this book, right? First, the potential, though non-kiss, of him as statue when he is returned to life instead of by a kiss, by her just kind of blowing on him. Right? He needs breath, so she gives him breath. She won't kiss him. The second major kissing moment... Hint, this one involves kissing. <laughs> when uh, they hear Australia ring and he, his spirit wants to leave his body. Yes. So similarities and differences from kissing incident number one? Well, she's saving his life again. She's saving his life again. Um, there is, again, a... In both cases, we have the question of sort of the union of his spirit and his body. Right? The first time she's bringing his spirit back, but his spirit only enters his body and his body is only free when a breath or kiss is bestowed. Here, his spirit is in his body, but wanting to leave and in order to keep his spirit in his body. She kisses him. Um, so the parallels there are relatively clear, though in some ways the danger is going in, the, in, in, are going in opposite directions. What is kissing moment number three? Very major kissing moment number three. <laughs> Hint, it doesn't involve touchstone. Yes, when Caragor tries to kiss her at the end. Yes, that's the appropriate reaction. Um, since we don't remember this that clearly, let us look. Page 306. Caragor looks down at the broken legged touchstone on the ground and says, your lover crawls towards us, a pathetic sight, but I shall have the next kiss. Caragor's blistered lips moved towards hers and still the ring moved in her hand. His breath was overpowering, reeking of blood, but she had long gone beyond throwing up. She turned her head aside at the last second and felt dry corpse-like flesh slide across her cheek. A sisterly kiss, chuckled Caragor, a kiss for an uncle who has known you since birth or slightly before, but it is not enough. Again, his words were not just words. Sabriel felt a force grip her head and move it back to face him, while her mouth was wedged apart, as if in passionate expectation. What is happening here? What is Caragor doing? And what does it have to do with our first two kissing moments? Kristen? Is that how he takes his spirit? Uh, well, what, what's his plan? What does he want to do? We have to keep his, his goals in mind, which he's just reminded us of in the previous page. So... Um, so we can know like, it's, he is not, for, for instance, one thing that we know for a fact he is not doing is like what the more doubt does, right? He's not going to just suck her soul dry as another dead spirit might do leaving her a crumbling husk this we can be absolutely certain is not his plan, right? now it's parallel to that I mean, there's some reasons why we might expect he might act that sort of way just because that's what we see other dead things doing. Certainly the, the, the one case we've seen that happen. Is it um, similar to the whole Persephone myth in that he's trying to lower her down to his there, there is a kind of parallel. Certainly the death thing is kind of nice, right? Um, which suggests fun paper topic. Caragor and Sabriel 
and the fairy king and Herodes in Sir Orphea. Discuss. But um, that is the other, because that certainly, the Herodes uh, and fairy king thing from Sir Orphea was also very Persephone like. Um, Hades and Persephone like. Especially when you go down and find all those quasi dead people. But, um, it's kind of like this, but it's not, I mean, not that the Persephone myth is exceptionally romantic, but we know there was love involved. Uh, that is, he had been struck by Cupid and whatnot, um, which is why Hades does what he does in the Persephone myth. But um, here, this is not love. In fact, it seems to be, <coughs> though he's the, but he is using that language, right? A sisterly kiss. Right? He wants something more, and she opens her mouth in passionate anticipation. Right, So there is queer erotic overtones to this moment. He is at least playing on that. Um, but I don't think he's... There seems to be actual love involved here on either of their parts. Dora? Yeah, I think they're basically trying to on one hand broker to bring it to his level. I had a show touchdown that once again he's always won. And he's taking away the thing, touchdown one of the most touchdown four, touchdown the game touchdown. He had a duty to the queen and he failed because Carol took it away from him. Mm-hmm. Now flash forward he twenty years, he's doing it all over again. He's showing that I have a power here, nothing I have to do yet. Exactly. Like he's trying to run his face and some spirit in Yeah, it is hard to see it's hard not to see that kind of uh, sort of sibling rivalry here because, because, especially because of the way it's introduced, right? He looks down at Touchdown and that seems to be what gives him the idea. Um, so yeah, there is a kind of like, I am going to show dominance. Dominance over her, but also dominance over Touchstone as well. Um, so in that sense, it seems to be a kind of expression of sort of who Caragor is and what he does to people. But remember again, what's his plan? What's the, what's the plan? What's he trying to do, Robert? I think he's trying to. We're talking about Caribou, right? Yeah. yeah. He's trying to get mortality by destroying the other tribesmen. So, what's like his next? What's what's the next step? How do we know he's not going to like suck her dry and leave a crumbling husk behind? We can know this. He needs her blood on the charter stone, so he needs her alive. Yeah, he has just said that. The choice he gave her right before he start he tries to kiss her is he says, you know, are you going to are you going to come asleep or are you going to come conscious the whole way to the Great Charter Stones where he's going to cut her throat and pour her blood on the stone because she and Touchstone both are bearers of the bloodline which can bring about the destruction of the stone. So we know that's his plan. We know that's what he's going to do. So this seems to be directed towards compulsion of her. That he is going to, I guess, by the medium of this kiss, dominate her and bring her completely under his power so that he can march her or take her or whatever to the stones and sacrifice her. So there is a kind of submission that he is demanding of her here. That he is going to compel her to. This kiss, therefore, seems to work almost exactly opposite.
to kiss number one. The kiss that freed Touchstone from imprisonment. This kiss, were it to happen, it seems, would not destroy, but enslave her. It would make her into sort of like a handmaid of a living person, which is uh, is really interesting because the idea of it would it would be like like she, she became a a hand while still alive, like the kids would destroy her spirit. We've been talking about the division of spirit and body. Yeah. The idea that was, well the previous kisses brought the spirit back, this would send it away and, and yeah. basically make her like one of the dead, but clearly still alive, so they can have his blood for the waking as he puts it. Exactly. He doesn't need her spirit, just her blood. Yeah, no, exactly. That seems to be that seems to be it. And so then, in between these two symmetrical kissing incidents, we get that central one. What's different? Thinking about the the sort of parallelism or the sort of mirror opposites of kiss number one and kiss number three. What's different about kiss number two? Yeah. There's a bit of actual romance. Yeah, this is, it's a mutual kiss. It's the only one of the three that's a mutual kiss. Um, And I I think that that's important. It does have a meaning for them personally, beyond just sort of the magical significance of that exchange, that spirit exchange, which we can see in one and three. Spirit exchanges of different kinds. Jordan? I have no idea what this would mean, but given that Kyo always focuses on blood, blood for waking, the fact that Samuel kisses him so hard he says bleeding and bites him, I guess. Yeah, she bites him, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, the fact that, I, I mean, I was thinking about that too. I too don't know what to do with that. But yeah, there's blood involved. Uh, the blood is flowing during that. So, I mean, she, she's using pain as well as the kiss to, like, bring him back to himself, right? But we're not allowed to forget that. I mean, afterwards, it describes it with the blood flowing down his face, still from their kiss. Um, I mean, there's a reference that after the kiss is over. So the blood does not seem to be merely incidental. And under the circumstances, it seems a little bit hard to ignore the blood anyway. You know, it's like, dude, I'm glad you didn't kiss this way over there. And I hope his blood doesn't drip on the stones, right? This is, I mean, the blood that, the whole point that, anyway, yeah, you see, you see how that works. Um, <coughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure what to do with that either, but that does seem to pull from cat. I think that's something with binding, because um, with Mogget, he needs blood to break his binding. In this one, I'm seeing his blood is binding, he's touched them back to his body. And then together to each other as well, picking up on what Brittany was saying. Right? This is clearly the first moment when the two of them are really connected together. He doesn't express his affection for her until later, but at that point it's clear that, um, and it's, well, it's not moot, but anyway, it's already mutual by that time. This is the moment when they are being bound together as well. Um, Yeah. Therefore, the kind of symmetry. This is not blood for the breaking, right? Um, Interesting possibility. We have five minutes, and I have one last question. We can probably come back at the beginning of next time, too. My last question. Does the walker choose the path? (laughs) Or the path, the walker? Both. (laughs) Why do you say that? 
Uh, I think throughout the story, there are different instances where Savriel is like, okay, I've got to do this my own way, but, um, like, you know, she's like, I have to, I have to bring my father back to life, you know, almost no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, but she does that, and then, in the end, it still leads her to the same point of, you know, becoming the person and knowing and reconciling with the fact that her father is gone, um. And I, I believe at some point, you know, or she was referring to like either Caragor or another spirit. She says, "I'm going to, I'm going to force him to walk the path yeah. that I want, even though he's trying to break out." She, you know, she knows it's her job to to put him back in death where he belongs. Yeah, her use of Kibbeth, Kibbeth and Saraneth together, um, the second to last bell ringing that she does, right. Um, she binds him and compels him to walk. Where? Back into his body. Back into his own body. Right? She binds him in his own body. She forces the spirit to walk back into his own body and binds him there. Um, and here, what we can see her doing, she, she wishes she could just make him walk straight through into death and down into the ninth gate, like she did with Throck. Remember? She knows she can't do that with him. She's not, you know, he has too much power for her just to compel him to do that. But you'll notice, where does she make him walk? Into a corpse. I'm not sure. Not just a corpse. Throck was in a corpse, right? Into his corpse. In other words, the path, he has tried to walk his own path. Right? He, Rogier Caragor has tried to choose his own path, a different path. I'm going to leave life behind. I'm going to leave my body behind. You don't choose your body, right? You don't choose, but he's going to. Forget it. I'm leaving my body behind, and I'm going to do this new, different path. I'm going to exchange life for power. And she compels him, essentially, to undo that choice. And she puts his spirit back into his body, where it belonged in the first place. So his choice of path is being sort of forcibly undone there. Yeah, Will? Um, <clears throat> as far as Sabre is concerned, um, we don't really see her like actively fighting becoming the abortion. I mean, like she's been from a very young age, you know, she's like <laughs> what did she think she was learning, you know? Like apologies are never made to shows with the bells, maybe she knows things with sword, and she's learning chart. Yeah. I mean, like, there's only one thing she could do. She's going to be the abortion. Yeah. She doesn't she, want to admit it in the book because she doesn't want her father to be dead. Right. But, like, I think that the path chose her. And she didn't have a choice. She, yeah, I mean, her skill set, you're right. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of job descriptions that her skill set fits. Right. Um, but, but there's one that it does. I agree. She, can she choose? She's the abortion, right? As Moggett is the first one to keep insisting on, but increasingly more and more people. Um, you know, down to that... Uh, who's, the, who's the last person to call her abortion? Do you remember? The last one who, who sort of recognizes her and calls her abortion? Isn't it her magic teacher? Yeah, her teacher at the school who recognizes she's no longer just Sabriel in my class. Uh, and she calls her by her title, of course. Um, 
So you can see that. And, and she, she has that moment, too, where she fully embraces it. When, at the end, when Touchstone is rather implausibly telling her to run away. Right, as his leg is broken and Caragor is about to jump out. I said that it seems a little implausible that she could actually succeed in running away. Did she choose that at this point? But she doesn't choose that. And she says, with obvious climactic, signif- climactic significance, that she cannot run. I am the horse. And, but there's another place where she can't choose. Again, she can, she's not allowed to choose in the epilogue either. Right? When we shift back into italics, what happens? I don't get the whole italics thing. Like, that seems to be a puzzling <laughs> publishing joke. <laughs> <laughs> For the prologue and the epilogue. But anyway, sorry. Well, she's, um, She's kind of riding on the currents of death, and she's just, you know, she fights it. They said, it says that she fights it for a second, but then she, you know, she's like, oh, well, everyone has a time to die. Dad said so, so I might as well just go. And then she's held on to, and they say, no, it's, it's not your time, and they kind of bring her back up into life and push her back in. Yeah, it's not your time. The other abortions won't let her go. And now she's not totally confound. She's not thrown utterly against her will back, but they tell her, this is not your time. She was, she was going. But in the end, she's, she's, she's the abortion. You can't go because there isn't another one. You were the last. I think they could just be, go have babies and then come back. But, uh, <laughs> but it's, she's, she's not permitted to go. The path seems to be choosing her fairly forcibly. Matt? Well, she does always have a choice, uh, which not yet seems to think she's going way earlier in the book. She could always go bad. Turn to the dark side, she could have an actual network. Yeah, she could. Caragor did. Um, Caragor did and Touchstone didn't. Which she's reminded of when she's looking at his body, that is Rogier's body, and seeing how similar it is to Touchstone. And she finds herself sort of thinking, where... Where was the fork in the road between these two? These two guys who looked so much alike, who were raised as brothers in the same household, and one of them becomes a, at times clueless, at times completely insane, but generally good guy. The other one becomes super evil mega villain. <laughs> How did this choice, where did this choice happen? How did they end up on these two totally different roads from what seemed to be such a similar beginning? Um, I have to let you go. Come back with final thoughts on the path and the walker from the beginning of Black That's it for this episode. Next time, Professor Olson concludes the Fairy and Fantasy course with a few last thoughts about Sabrielle and some thoughts about the role of fantasy literature over time. As always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.